Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Coming up, the Pope signals he is open to blessing same-sex marriages, but is it too little, too late from the Catholic Church? Plus, the first of five Gardaí protests begins as GRA members refuse to take up voluntary overtime today. Um, disputes over rosters are always resolved in the end, and I've no doubt uh, that this uh, dispute will be resolved. I hope it can be resolved uh, without uh, any further escalation. And we examine the factors contributing to the rise in oil prices and whether the government has a solution in the forthcoming budget. all of that. Just before I came on air this evening, I caught up with news correspondent Giles Gibson in Rome after reports emerged that at least 20 people lost their lives after a coach veered off a flyover near the Italian city of Venice. I started by asking him to tell us what more he could. Well, the latest reports in Italian media are saying that this was an intercity regional bus that was moving through a place called Mestre, which is just over the water from the city of Venice itself. Uh, we are hearing in these reports that this bus somehow broke through the barrier of an overpass and then fell onto a railway line. Uh, these reports saying that that fall from that overpass was around about 10 meters before it caught fire uh, on the railway lines below. Uh, we're hearing that at least 12 people have been injured in this bus and taken to lo local hospitals in the area. Uh, and media reports also saying that uh, an unclear number, not exact figures yet, could also still be missing uh, in this really terrible tragedy. As I was saying there, the very latest, Giles, is 20 people have lost their life at least, but there may be some survivors. That's right. We are hearing that uh, at least 12 people have been injured and that many of them have been uh, taken to hospital. Really, the, the social media footage that has emerged from the scene of the crash is, is pretty shocking. There are these videos on social media of people sort of on the overpass shouting down, looking over at the scene below them where you can see sort of flames rising up towards the overpass and also uh, some twisted metal from the barrier where it appears that the bus has broken through and then plunged, as I say, according to reports, about 10 meters. Uh, we've also uh, had a photograph of the scene from Matteo Salvini, the Italian transport minister. Uh, that photo showing a similar thing, but from a different angle, showing this bus completely overturned with its wheels in the air 
and also fire crews on the scene who've clearly uh, been putting out the, the blaze that was seen in those earlier uh, videos that were circulating on social media. Matteo Salvini in that media, uh, social media post where he put out that photograph, he also sent uh, his uh, prayers for the victims and said that in his position as transport minister that he is constantly receiving updates and we also had a very swift statement from the Prime Minister herself from uh, Georgia Maloney here in Rome saying that she sends her deepest condolences to the families. So clearly uh, this accident has already uh, within just a few hours really caused serious shock here in Italy and we are, are getting reaction from the very top of the political, uh, sort of the top of the political spectrum. All right, we'll leave it there. Giles Gibson, thank you for bringing us that up to date. Well, in what appears to be a reversal on comments made in the past, Pope Francis has indicated he would be open to having the church bless same-sex couples. While some have praised the move, others maintain it was long overdue. Here to discuss this further is former President of Ireland, Mary McAleese, Irish independent journalist, Ellen Coyne, and Father Joe MacDonald. You are all very welcome to the programme. Ellen, I'm going to come to you first. What exactly did the Pope write in this letter and how exactly did it come about? So over the summer, five retired Conservative cardinals wrote to the Pope asking for him to clarify his position on a number of different issues, including the ordination of women and the issue of blessing same-sex unions uh, within the church. I think they were also asking for clarification whether or not church doctrine could be changed. Uh, the cardinals were not satisfied with the Pope's response and there was a little bit of an over and back and the result of that was the Vatican publishing his response uh, earlier this week ahead of a three-week synod that's going to start tomorrow on Wednesday. The most newsworthy angle was the Pope saying and appearing to contradict a previous position that he took in 2021 that there might be situations on a case-by-case -case basis where a Catholic priest could decide to bless a same-sex union. But he was important. It, he made uh, the important clarification that uh, you know this would have to be on a case-by-case -case basis and that there would be a clear dividing line between the blessing of a union and the sacrament of marriage, which he still believes, and the Catholic Church obviously still believes, uh, should only be between a man and a woman. So when he said this should be on a case-by-case -case basis, did he suggest what factors might be taken into consideration? So uh, I suppose the interesting thing is the reason that this letter or discussion came about is because there was a perception that sometimes the Pope can say things that um, give rise to speculation that aren't exactly clear and that might, you know, some of his utterances can be open to interpretation, often the interpretation that the church might be liberal, liberalising its views on hot button issues. Um, he wasn't exactly clear, but there was interesting rhetoric in the answer talking about things like, um, you know, trying to be compassionate, how the church shouldn't always be kind of forbidding things and ruling things out um, and trying to come with, a, I guess, a position of, of compassion towards people. So um, the answer seems to be open to interpretation, depending on what your own position on the issue is. OK, well, Mary McAleese, what is your position on this? Do you see this as a U-turn by Pope Francis? And if it is that, what do you think the catalyst for it was? Well, there's no doubt it's a U-turn. It's probably one of the most obvious U-turns, I think probably since Chile in 2018, when he had to make a huge U-turn there. But this is a, a, an, ex an extraordinary U-turn because... If you remember back in 2021, he signed off on a document 
prepared by the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which said that under no circumstances could the church or would the church ever countenance uh, blessings for a couple, Catholic couples who had been married, who were in a same-sex marriage. So, and, and, and worse than that, of course, it went on to say the church could never bless sin and that same-sex Catholic couples who were married were, in the words of that document, signed off by Francis, um, that they were incapable of receiving or expressing God's grace. So it was a, an absolutely dreadful document. The upshot of that was actually, as so often happens when the Vatican comes very heavily down on a subject that it's trying to silence debate on. Remember, the congregation brought out that statement in order to silence the German church, which had indicated it, it was having its own uh, German synod, and it had indicated that it was minded to bless same-sex marriages. So this was the doctrine congregation emphatically saying, no, you can't. And as so often happens when they do that, there's an opposite and equal reaction. In fact, in this case, a really very unequal reaction because many priests, many bishops complained about the language and indeed many priests, for example, in Germany, um, openly held same-sex blessings, blessings of same-sex couples. And then uh, the big, big one was uh, the Belgian bishops, Bishop Bonnie in Belgium, who developed a liturgy for same-sex, blessings of same-sex married couples, and did so, sent it to the Vatican and said, this does not offend church teaching in relation to marriage, which of course the church sees as exclusively between heterosexuals. So believe me, this is a climb down of very significant proportions by uh, Pope Francis. And it's very welcome for all that, because where did the pressure come from? It came from the German Synod, it came from the Belgians, it came from the Irish too, of course, because one of the most influential documents in our own synodal process came from the LGBTIQ group, um, focus group, uh, that reported on behalf of the Elfin Diocese and was chaired by Ursula Halligan, an absolutely first-class document. So the people of God who assembled over the last couple of years as part of Pope Francis's synodal process, doesn't matter what continent, over five continents, they're all saying the same thing. Church teaching in relation to human sexuality, in relation to gay men and women and young people has to change. The language is unchristian, it's unloving, it's hurtful, it's, more, it's worse than that, it's damaging, it's not Christian, it's not Christ-like, it has to go. And that's the real pressure on Francis as the synod opens. Um, if that is his position, he's willing to change his position when it comes to blessing same-sex uh, relationships or same-sex marriage in terms of women's ordination or indeed married clergymen. Do you think there's an openness and a willingness there to revisit, restudy his position in terms of those two areas? Well, he's already indicated um, loosely in the past that, of course, celibacy, compulsory celibacy isn't doctrinally based. There's no kind of theological base to it. It's a pragmatic uh, rule that's been um, that you know that has been part of the church's culture, not forever, but for a, for a number of centuries. But that could go tomorrow. But the interesting thing here is what he said about women's ordination, because honestly, he has said some really woolly things um, uh, about women's or about the reason why women are excluded from ordination. This time, he didn't do that. I'm not entirely sure that I can interpret what he said. <laughs> but as I read it, 
it's actually very interesting. It's what you might call Jesuitical. Uh, what he's saying is that the exclusion of women from ordination um, is not, um, is not um, a dogmatic doctrine, but it is a definitive statement. But definitive statements in the church are not fully worked out. We don't have a fully worked out definition, but we are obliged as members of the church to accept that teaching. And we're not allowed, he says, in this, in this, this week, he said, we're not allowed to criticize, I beg your pardon, he uses the word to contradict it publicly, though everybody, of course, many people are doing it, and the synod people did it as well, but we're not allowed to publicly contradict it, but what we can do is study it. And I'm wondering to myself if in saying that he's giving guidance to the synod, because once again, the two-year process um, of synodal discussions at dioceses, national and con uh, co um, uh, continental level, they have thrown up a massive consensus among the faithful across the entire global church in favour of greater inclusion of women in decision-making in the church. So I'd say he can't ignore that. So he might be trying to guide people to say, look, don't get stuck into an argument about ordination of women, but perhaps coming out of the synod, there could be a study group, like the study group on the diaconate, for example. Do you think could him taking too this... Too long now. Sorry to cut across you so sorry. there. Uh, sorry to cut across you there. I'm just wondering, do you think his change of position has the ability, perhaps, to bring people back into the church? I don't know about that. And honestly, I have no idea. Because many people leave the church today um, not just because they're cross with or angry with or frustrated by church teaching, not just because they've lost trust because of the clerical abuse and episcopal mismanagement, but they leave because they can, because they don't believe anymore that the fact that they were baptized at two weeks old into the church, they don't believe the church teaching that says that if you're baptized, you know, at two weeks or two months or two years, that you are therefore forever and ever a lifelong member of the Catholic Church with no way out. People just don't believe that anymore. They laugh at that. They think it's risible, which of course it is. Um, and nor do they believe that they must be obedient to the magisterium um, and that they must passively accept doctrines that are, in their views, um, unsustainable. People have their own opinions now, freedom of expression, freedom of belief freedom to change religion, and they know all that, and that we have a very literate, a human rights literate uh, generation who just don't believe a church, church teaching any longer that has failed to, if you like, failed to adapt itself to the reality of human, the human rights of its members. Okay. So I don't know, will it bring people back? What it might do, and hopefully will do, will help to put the church on a path towards greater Christ-centric authenticity. It's lost its way in so many ways. We're dealing with an imperial hierarchical structure that belongs to the 19th century, has not updated All itself, right. despite the efforts of Vatican II, just didn't get, just didn't capture um, the zeitgeist of Vatican II, didn't update, and is now way behind the times. And But here's the thing that, that encourages me, the people of God, the faithful, as they call them, who took part in the synodal process 
are the very people who have made this synodal process theirs. They have claimed it for their own. They have insisted on putting on the agenda things the Pope did not want talked about. He didn't want contentious issues. He didn't want well, certainly... issues that contradicted the magisterium. He got them all. Hey, they're certainly there now. Okay, let me just put some of this to my panel. Joe, first of all, have you carried out any of these blessings? Are these blessings happening in Irish churches? Uh, well, I, c I can't say whether they're happening or not. I just make a comment. I'm, I'm, I, I was hoping Mary was going to be joining us from the Synod this evening, um, herself and Ursula Halligan, but I'm disappointed they're not. That that was a, a missed opportunity. Um, for myself, no, I haven't. Uh, I hope to. Um, I, I, I'm encouraged by the, um, the Pope's um, apparent openness uh, to it. I think it's fraught with difficulty and Mary has touched on some of it and Ellen touched on some of it as well because I think there are people who will say this is far too much and others will say it's far too little. And you had that experience today, didn't you? Oh, yeah. People yeah. who were attending church who felt, I suppose, maybe alienated by this position. Well, Ellen mentioned the five cardinals, you see, and, and they they have, the way they approached this was that the synod is a dangerous time for the church and, and that some of the utterances of Francis are dangerous. And there's people in the church who would believe that. There's people who would say, this is, this is watering down core teaching. And then there's others who say, please, Francis, keep going, do more, you know? And, and I was interested in your comments with, with Mary there about, about it being a U-turn and so on. He's getting older. He's near the end of his papacy. He's probably less worried now about being poisoned uh, by the curia. So there's or a being freedom. Popular? Uh, well, there's a freedom. Yeah, I, I think there is a freedom common. I think he's less concerned about some of the things he might have been concerned about, you know, at the beginning of the papacy. So maybe we're getting a freer, uh, more courageous Francis. And uh, I think, you know, but, but I think when you get caught in the polarization of too much or, or, or too little, I think they ask, what's he trying to do? And I think he's coming from a faith perspective. I think he's genuinely and has been throughout his papacy trying to inch us towards a more compassionate church and less about the finger pointing, tut tutting you know, a judgmental church. Now, people would hear that and say, oh, that's diluting church teaching. I don't think Francis dilutes church teaching at all. But I think he may say on this topic that we're discussing this evening, how can we find a way of being respectful and hold sacred church teaching on marriage and be compassionate? I mean, you asked me a question, have I performed any same-sex blessings? No, I, ble I have blessed a cow in labor. I have blessed a sick parrot. I blessed a horse donkey, but I can't bless two men or two women who love each other. There's something not quite right about that. Yeah, and the, the difficulty, Ellen, is that a lot of the teachings of the Catholic Church now, prior perhaps to this intervention, are incompatible with a lot of people in Ireland who have voted so overwhelmingly for things like abortion or marriage equality. And it has driven people away from the church, hasn't it? It has driven people away from the church and I think that people, you know, for some people walking away from the Catholic Church is easy. They have no trust in the institution. They don't want to be associated with it. But I think there is a core group of other people who actually expect better from the church and wanted to reform because their faith means a lot to them. And I think what also gets lost in this discussion sometimes is, um, you know, the gay people of faith. Like there are definitely yeah. parish priests in Ireland who know somebody 
since baptism, that person falls in love and gets married and both the priest and the parishioner are put in a difficult position where they have to kind of go to a stranger to get that marriage recognised. And I think that that is, you know, we can talk about synods and um, kind of get into the intricacies of the theology behind it, but this is actually a very human story that is playing out in parishes all across Ireland where the priests are being put in an awful position and people of faith are being put in an awful position as well. And I think that I personally don't think that the teaching at the moment is in any way Christian. And as Mary McAleese pointed out, the rhetoric that is being used against people in same-sex relationships, I think it's very hard to countenance that with the rest of the teaching of the Catholic Church. Um, one of the points I think I was making there uh, with Mary McAleese is whether or not this is too little, too late for people of faith, for people who still consider themselves perhaps Catholic and who would like to practice but have, for various reasons, walked away from the institution. Do you think this change, this openness, this conversation, does it bring, will it bring people back? I don't think this on its own is enough to bring people back, but the church thinks in centuries. So this is actually quite seismic, even though the actual doctrine itself hasn't changed. But I think it is open to interpretation. If you listen to the rhetoric of what the Pope was saying when he was talking about trying to be compassionate to same-sex couples, he was saying that because the church sees those people as sinners. That's compassion, not because those people deserve to have their relationship vindicated and recognised. It's because they're doing something wrong and they need help. And I think a lot of people in same-sex relationships would rightly find that very offensive. And I think it's up to them, I suppose, how much generosity they want to show the church. Um, and if they, if they do kind of have hope and faith that things will get better. Um, you wrote in one of your uh, pieces, the Catholic Church is at its most passionate and its loudest when it's arguing about issues of sexuality and women's health to the point that it risks defining itself by its prejudices. Yeah, and I think that that goes against the church. I think that it's finding itself with some very uncomfortable company recently. There's some really aggressive groups in Ireland that have started to see the church as a warm place because they want colleagues for a culture war about sexuality or issues about gender. They'll happily ignore the church's teaching on things like refugees and asylum seekers because they, they just want company and a lonesome charade against gay people and women. And I think there are a lot of people in the church who are very uncomfortable with the people that are being drawn to the Catholic church now and it's actually resulted in some parts of the country with um, Catholic priests being attacked by racist extremists who feel that they're not Catholic enough for them. Uh, and I think that if that's the way the Catholic Church is going, whatever you think about its past, it means a lot to people in this country. And I think that if it were to go that way, I think it would be an awful shame. Yeah, have you had experience of that? Does sometimes it yeah. feel like the last refuge for, for prejudices? I mean, and I, I've said this before, and it, and it doesn't go down very well. There is a group that I, I a little bit mischievously, but with some truth, refer to them as Catholic ISIS. I mean, there's a group there that are really extreme. They're, I mean, Ellen has put it very well, better than I could put it. They're not Christian in the true sense of the word. They have little understanding of Jesus, and would appear to have little interest, but want to go on a crusade and, and bash up all sorts of different groups. And if you as a priest are not going to be judgmental and harsh and pointing the finger and tut-tutting, then they feel you're failing. You're not, you're not preaching the gospel, Father, and so on. And of course, they, they, there are people who don't spend time in serious prayer. They don't have any understanding of the gospels. They have no personal encounter with Jesus and yet are very happy to tell the rest of us how we should be living our life. 
All right, look, we're going to have to leave that conversation there for now. But my thanks to Mary McAleese, to Ellen Coyne and to Father Joe MacDonald for coming into us this evening. Up next, from the first day of the GRA protest to the barrister strike set to bring the criminal courts to a halt. We have plenty more to debate after this break. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back. Well, criminal law barristers took to the picket line today for the first time in dispute with government over their fees. And joining me to discuss this further is Shannon spokesperson on justice, Senator Barry Ward, independent TD, Verona Murphy, political correspondent with the Irish Mur, Louise Byrne, and I'm also joined by barrister Michael D. Hurgan. I'm going to start with you, Michael, and you're all very welcome to the programme. These cuts happened a long time ago, so why now? Why is this the time that barristers decide to take this action? Uh, thank you for having me on the programme, uh, Kira. You're right, this is a situation uh, which hasn't arisen uh, recently. It's been ongoing for quite some time. Our members were subjected to a series of cuts arising from the recession, uh, and that's obviously uh, something that uh, that members bore, uh, obviously, that they had to uh, in circumstances where the country was going through a really chronic period. Um, but those cuts amounted to cumulatively uh, in the region of 30 percent. And um, what has happened in the intervening period, obviously, is that all the other stakeholders who are in the court with us, the uh, court staff, the prison officers, members of Vanguard, the Shikona, uh, have seen their uh, uh, pay restored, that they've seen a reversal of, uh, of those cuts. Uh, that's not happened in relation to uh, members of the bar who practice in the criminal justice system. Uh, and it's a good question you ask about why it's happening now. Because for many years we've been engaging, obviously, with other stakeholders. With other stakeholders, uh, but unfortunately, we've reached a point, uh, as you pointed out, where uh, you've had, uh, for example, the withdrawal of service today by members of the profession uh, in, I suppose, circumstances where there hasn't been an engagement uh, with from government uh, with our uh, obvious ongoing efforts to uh, see pay restored. Uh, the position at the moment effectively is, is that our members have seen an effect of 40 percent uh, pay cut since 2002 in real terms. And it's not just, I should say, uh, members of the bar uh, who think that the situation should uh, be reversed. Uh, we had a review commence in the beginning 
or sorry, in 2016. Uh, and that was a review conducted by the Department of Justice in conjunction with the DPP. Uh, that concluded in 2018 with uh, it being stated that all parties were in unequivocal agreement that the flexibility being delivered by barristers was considered comparable to the flexibility delivered by other groups to justify the reversing of cuts. Uh, and effectively in 2018, the DPP and the Department of Justice said that the review process uh, was at an end and effectively that the fees to barristers should be concluded. And indeed, I should say, there should also be a, a link recreated to public sector pay. That was also removed unilaterally at the time of the crash. So against that background of essentially the matter being decided in principle many years ago, we say in 2018, we've seen no movement whatsoever, no engagement. And as I say, it would appear in principle, the Department of Justice and the Director of Public Prosecutions agree that barristers should have their, um, have, uh, their pay restored. And that hasn't happened. And that has led, obviously, amongst other things, to what you've seen today, Kira. What we also heard today, Michael, was the stat that two-thirds of criminal barristers leave the bar after six years of practice. Do you have any evidence that their earnings is one of the driving forces out of the bar? Yes, and, and it's um, just coming back to what you've asked about why now, uh, perhaps there might have been a complacency uh, in the last number of years that effectively there was no real reason uh, to restore pay uh, to, to barristers, that barristers were still uh, providing services. But we have on the ground seen very significant um, and worrying trends. You've obviously uh, referred to one of them. If, for example, life of the criminal bar was as lucrative as perhaps stereotypes would have people believe, you wouldn't have that uh, statistic that you've just outlined, I, I would suggest, of two thirds of people who've studied, I, I'm quite sure, worked hard, made sacrifices uh, to work in a profession, which I, I think people generally know is, is very difficult to, to get started in. Uh, but after six years, uh, nonetheless, uh, feel that they've no choice but to leave. Um, but to answer the question further, in terms of the trends that we have seen, uh, this year uh, you've had instances, and I'm sure this would, uh, would cause concern to your viewers. We've had instances where the Director of Public Prosecutions has not been in a position to uh, brief senior experienced barristers in relation to serious cases being prosecuted in the Central Criminal Court. Uh, so that, in common with, with the statistic you just cited, I think really underlines uh, the chronic manpower and retention crisis which is facing uh, the criminal bar. And this is a situation, as I say, which hasn't simply been created today or yesterday, but it is part of, I suppose, uh, well, I would say it's, it's a natural consequence of the situation not having been addressed, All that right. we don't have. Sorry to cut across you there. I just am conscious of the time and I want to put this to my panel because we have um, Barry Ward here. One of the big questions that arises from all of this is given the fact that there was this review in 2016, they did report back in 2018, there seems to be widespread support for barristers today. Even, I think, politically there's support um, given, I think, the unfairness that a lot of people see because most cuts have been reversed, theirs haven't. Why has it not happened? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but it, it obviously, it hasn't been a political priority because there have been so many 
many other priorities, and I understand the desire to do that. But as you say, the Minister for Justice has indicated that she is broadly in favour of this. It obviously has to be signed off by the Ministers for Finance, and I think the, the I hope that that is now going to come to pass. Where is but, the resistance coming from? Is it from the Department of Justice, or is it the Department of Public Expenditure? I mean, I don't know. If rumours are to be believed, I think uh, the deeper is reluctant always to, to loosen the purse strings when it comes to any sector. But there is... Well, that's a, not strictly true, uh, is it, Barry? Well, because I, there have been, well, as the barristers course, the point they're making there today, have, but all the other cuts have been... Res- I think reversed. barristers are an unsympathetic group. I think people... There is, a, as Michael said, there's a misconception out there that all barristers are very well paid. And undoubtedly, there are barristers, as there are in any sector, who are well paid. But criminal barristers belong to a particular ca- category that is not, it's not a very lucrative part of the, of the law, but it's a very important part of the law because the criminal justice system doesn't function without those people who will prosecute and defend those serious matters. Did the government, and did the Fine Gael government, who've been there for the last 12 years, did they exploit the fact that they know there is little public sympathy for barristers? I don't think that's what it is at all. Um, the Fine Gael government that came in in 2011 had to make incredibly difficult choices uh, for all sectors and everybody took pay cuts in 2011. But this some, is 2023, some, Yeah, Barry. absolutely, which, which is why there is a frustration amongst barristers. But they rolled back at different paces. And uh, as it happens, barristers are the last ones. I hope that'll be fixed in the coming weeks. I hope as we take steps in the budget next week that we won't have the, ever have this conversation again. And I think it's important also so on an ongoing basis to tie that pay into the civil service so that we have certainty about how that pay is going to develop into the future. Um, Verona, you had some concerns about today's action. I surely do. I mean, for every defendant that a barrister is representing, there are victims. And I think to be hearing this is very concerning for people who often wait for years for justice. And do you to be... think they shouldn't have gone out today? No, absolutely. I don't think they have been left with any choice. And I mean, Barry is a member of the government who haven't prioritised this. As a, as a retired Chief Justice said, nobody's working for the rates that they're expecting to work for. And I fully understand it. I worked in a legal practice for eight years. I know exactly what preparation goes in. And I also know the barrister's first payday is when the case starts in the courts. But I think the reality is this has to be about the people who are affected by any form of adjournments due to strike action. And I think also any backlogs that will be created. This is what we're faced with since COVID. Everything has been blamed on COVID. We'll see backlogs in the criminal justice system. And they'll blame it on strike action. Government are responsible. This is another debacle for the Minister of Justice. And I but think only, it's, they're starting the number, to the pile up. The resources have been put into it. Like Sorry, for, in the last few months, we've uh, assigned 30 new judges to different courts in order to deal with that backlog. So in fairness to the Minister, she's taking very concrete steps in line with recommendations From a review to address that those. took place in 2016. No, report delivered that recommendation before Christmas. Okay, let's just stick with the issue at hand here. Very briefly, Louise, Minister McIntyre was questioned about this at the weekend. She did indicate that, you know, it was part of her priorities. Do you think this is something that's going to be addressed in the budget next week? It's hard to tell, really. Budget negotiations are really, really up in the air. And we know, and there seems to be a lot of indications over the last couple of days that money is a little bit tighter than we thought it might have been. So she did indicate that she's going in to talk about it. The Taoiseach indicated in the doll earlier that he understands where the barristers are coming from. So they seem to have the right people in their corner whether they're going to have Pascal Donoghue and deeper in their corner next week is remains to be seen. It could last longer. We just don't know yet. Okay, one of the other uh, issues today for the Department of Justice, for the Minister, is the first of these five Tuesdays in the month of October where Gardaí are going to refuse to work uh, overtime. 
by and large, I think it was fairly downplayed today, the impact it would have. But given the fact that this is a force, Louise, that seems to rely so heavily on overtime, you'd have to think that there's districts around the country this evening that have minimum cover. Well, as someone said to me earlier, a lot of the policing in Ireland actually runs on overtime and a lot of places are going to be got cut short today. And I think what is going to be really interesting over the next couple of weeks is what exactly does Justice Minister Helen McEntee do on this? We have heard that she's been criticised in some quarters for not taking further action. Um, Aon O'Rear's on the Labour TD today and the Dáil accused the Fine Gael and this government of letting law and order basically fall because we have not only the Barrister protest, but we have the Garda protest today. Don't forget, this is continuing every Tuesday of October. We have the budget next week. We have Halloween at the end of the month. There will be no Garda overtime for that. And I think that is playing on, in people's minds, especially on politicians' minds when they think about the budget and they think about the scenes that we saw outside Leinster House two weeks ago. So I think it is going to be pressure on now to get um, things in motion and to get Gardaí back doing overtime, but it remains to be seen how quickly Helen McEntee or indeed Drew Harris can actually do that. You and the independents are taking a motion tomorrow, Verona. What is that? The regional independent group prepared a motion some four weeks ago when we came back to the Dáil, such as the concern, particularly in rural Ireland, at the removal of what we would regard as community policing. Guards are being removed from that sector in order to make up the fifth unit that would go back to the Westminstertown roster, uh, roster in November. And uh, But it's all of these things combined. I mean, we have the Taoiseach continually pronouncing that we're going to train a thousand, we're going to fund a thousand new Gardaí. They're not new Gardaí, they're newly trained recruits replacing some 400 to 500 retirees, as well as the fact that we actually have two days, two day, 633 of those thousand Gardaí that the Taoiseach pronounced only in training for this year. But so in terms of your motion tomorrow, are you motion, calling on the commissioner to drop the demand we to go are, back to the Western Town roster? No, we're calling on the minister to instruct that talks take place. It's prepared four weeks ago, which we know that there is a red line issue set in place by the commissioner. And that is that the Westmantown roster is going to start on the 6th of November. Bearing in mind that this commissioner, it's not his first dalliance. In 2018, the commissioner that we have today, and it's, everybody says it's been personalised. As a CEO, he's not performing very well. He's on a top salary. In 2018, he reduced the number of recruits from 800 to 600 because he wanted to save money. That was something that Minister Flanagan endorsed at the time. We're now in 2023. We have never recouped the loss of those. They blame COVID. It's nothing to do with COVID. Okay. We have an inept CEO at the helm, which happens to be Drew So you're Harris. also holding the commissioner responsible, I, even though he is just trying to implement well, the he, roster that was there before this, COVID, like many other but Kira, CEOs who are saying what happened during COVID doesn't apply any longer. He also said 12 months ago that we could not implement the old roster because we didn't have the resources. I'd ask what has changed. I mean, at Fianna Fáil in 2018, when, when he actually withdrew over 200 recruits, had they went ballistic. They're not saying anything now that they're in government. I just don't understand how this has been blamed on 9,000 rank and file for personalising something when we clearly have an inept commissioner okay, and the minister's refusing to assert that. Barry, we'll let you respond to that. Well, there's an awful lot to respond to. There's a lot of assertions. We're not taking out community they're leasing. We are, they're not facts now. There's a well, lot of conjecture, a lot of commentary. Hang on a second. No, 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 no. Community police Sorry, have Verona, already... You don't get to have another go now. Let me respond removed. to what you've actually said. They, they haven't have been, been removed. removed. Okay, you talked 
way respond. You talked about funding a thousand recruits. We have last year, Helen McEntee had the foresight to see this problem coming. She got an allocation in the budget last year for a thousand extra Gardaí. Over 850 of them will be attested this year. Not in training, attested. She she accounted for 400 civilians that will get Gardaí back on the streets. The very community Gardaí you're talking about. So let's not, like either, the but reality is sure. there is a dispute between Don't management and figures, and file. Those and figures it, aren't backed commissioners, up. Commissioners, they absolutely are. They're not. Commissioners are frequently unpopular with rank and file Gardaí. There is necessarily tension and thankfully the Commissioner is not in a popularity contest and shouldn't be vying for the popu his popularity. He's in it. All right. Whether he's popular We're going to have to leave that there for now. My thanks to uh, Michael for joining us. Lots more to come from the panel after this break. Very welcome back. Well, to some breaking news. In a historic move, Kevin McCarthy has become the first Speaker of the US House to be ousted from the position by members of his own party. The yeas are 216. The nays are 210. The resolution is adopted. Without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid on the table. The Office of Speaker of the House of the United States House of Representatives is hereby declared vacant. Well, here to tell us more is Washington News correspondent Kate Fisher. Kate, it's quite a dramatic clip when you see it there. This is a move without precedence in the House. Tell us the atmosphere there and what exactly happened this afternoon. Well, it really was very tense indeed. And as you say, this is unprecedented. It's never happened in US history. So uh, the networks here were filled with anchors and reporters saying, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's happening next. And people running down corridors, chasing after uh, members of Congress to try to get their opinions on things. So it's really uh, quite an unusual day in Washington. Uh, as for what happens next, that is also unclear because this hasn't happened before. Uh, an interim speaker has been appointed. That is Patrick McHenry, another member of the House of Representatives, a supporter of Kevin McCarthy. He was chosen at the very beginning of Kevin McCarthy's term to be the interim speaker, should he be removed or fall ill for some reason. Uh, that was kept secret, but that has already been decided. He immediately takes over. What we don't know is how much power he has, um, whether it will just be power to oversee a new election and we also don't know when that election will be held. We understand it's not expected tonight. Republicans, we're told, are due to meet behind closed doors in about an hour or so's time, but we're not expecting more elections tonight. But they're going to have to be soon because the House of Representatives needs to vote through vital budget bills for the US to continue to fund its government activities. And there are just over 40 days left for that all to be sorted out. It's already a short amount of time for that to happen. And now there is nobody in charge. It's going to be even more of a rush to the end. And uh, many members of the Republican Party, supporters of Kevin McCarthy, House Republicans saying that this this was a vote for chaos and that is what will ensue and many of those members are very angry about what's happened because it was only a handful of far-right Republicans that caused this. But do those far-right Republicans who aligned themselves with the Democrats to get this vote, do they now in essence control the Republican Party? 
Well, yes, it does seem to be that way. This uh, small number of people have this outsized amount of power. Uh, part of that is because of the way that Kevin McCarthy was elected to the speakership. That was in January, just nine months ago. Uh, and it took 15 rounds of ballots to get him elected because uh, of these far-right members who were not supporting him. And in the end, he had to cut a deal with them to say that he would uh, do things like launch an impeachment investigation into US President Joe Biden, which he's done. But also they wanted to see huge spending cuts implemented. And uh, he has not done that. Instead, he worked with Democrats to get um, a, a spending bill through to fund the government further. But these far-right Republicans were unhappy with that. And that's what caused this vote to oust him from the speakership. And okay. those few members have been successful. And the reason it's kind of down to him is that when he made these deals in January to get the job in the first place, one of the deals he said is that he would change the rules so it would make it much easier for him to be ousted from his position. It would just take uh, one member of the Republican Party to say they wanted to call a vote. And that's exactly what happened. All and right. now he's lost his, his, his post. And as you say, Kate, uh, chaos ensues. Thank you for bringing us an update on that breaking news. Well, back to matters closer to home as the cost of petrol, diesel and oil all continue to rise. Will the government address the pain being felt at the pump again before the budget next week? Barry Ward, Verona Murphy and Louise Byrne have stayed with me and we've all noticed it, Louise, haven't we? We have seen the figures at the pump creep closer and closer and closer to that two euro, which really, I think, plays in people's mind, doesn't it? That two euro a, a litre. And we've also heard reports of home heating oil jumping again. Yeah, and I think it's not just the people's minds that that two euro mark plays. And I think that is actually playing on the government's mind. Because what we keep hearing again and again from ministers, including Finance Minister Michael McGrath and indeed the Taoiseach, is that they, don't, they cut the excise the last time because the petrol got up over two euro and they don't want it to get up over two euro again only to have to cut excise duty. So I think it is now widely expected that that final reversal of the excise duty cuts that were introduced about a year and a half ago, that that will not go ahead at the end of October and that will be announced on budget day next week. It's widely expected. Of course, nothing nailed down, but I mean, the amount of kites being flown and the amount of hints being dropped over the last week, I'd be amazed if we saw an increase at the pumps at the end of the month. I suppose the question is going to be though, even if they do you know, hold back and they don't reverse that cut in the budget next week, as was expected, I think it was going to come from the beginning of November, will it be enough to to keep the figures below two euro. And if it doesn't, what impact is that having on people, Verona? Well, I mean, the impact it's having already is people referring to them as a gouging government, and that's what they're going to go down in history as. I mean, government take 58% of a litre of fuel, be it diesel or petrol. And I think the reality is that we cannot, in a cost of living crisis, continue in that vein. It penalises rural Ireland dwellers because we don't have alternatives in public transport. I mean, people are to the pin of their colour. It's rent, it's mortgage, it's energy and it's fuel and they cannot do it all. And they are, reversal is one thing. They should actually be reducing their tax take and stop the gouging. They actually still tax the tax. We still charge VAT on excise duty. Government don't need to do that. They continuously tell us 
about the excess they have from corporation tax take and how well everybody is doing. Well, let me tell you, middle-income earners are not doing well at all and they don't want just this implementation. On the 1st of September, they saw the cost of a McDonald's meal for their children go up. They saw the cost of a house go up because they introduced a concrete levy at 5% and they saw the cost of petrol and fuel rise again. This is a problem. It's a gouging government and it needs to stop. Well, All it right, wasn't, it wasn't this government that introduced excise on fuel. It has been thus for generations. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it uh, clearly Verona doesn't understand how we can work budgets if she thinks that we can take an exceptional tax take from corporation tax and use that to fund reductions and then what, take them back next year? Because the reality is that is once-off funding. Um, I know the government is and the two ministers for, for finance are acutely aware of the cost of living crisis. We know that the cost of fuel impacts every aspect because it affects transport and it, and, and it affects ev the cost of everything that we, we consume. So well, I know In terms they will of do the measures open can. to them, we know, as Louise said, it's, it's almost guaranteed at this point um, that they will not reverse that cut that was due to come in in November. Yeah. But if it goes, let's say the price of the pump goes but above two euro after that, country, are they yeah. going to have to introduce Contrary further to what cuts? Verona says, so much of the cost of fuel is outside the control of the government. She refers to VAT. 58%. She, hang on a second. She, she refers to VAT, which is not something we can just unilaterally vary. The cost That's of rubbish. fuel itself is controlled by OPEC cartels who have reduced the, the amount of fuel that's available in order to maintain an artificial Saying it doesn't price. make it true. So, it's rubbish. But, but, sorry, Verona, what you're saying actually is, is deeply dishonest because you're suggesting to people the government could turn around tomorrow and cut all, all this right. and they can't. Okay, unfortunately we're going to have to go there, but I promise you we will return because there's clearly more in that conversation. My thanks to Barry, to Verona, Louise, and to all of my guests for joining me on this very busy programme. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms, and you can always find us on Instagram and on TikTok tonight, BMTV. But from all the late team here, good night and do take care. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.